Involve. Solve. Evolve. Welcome to Cloud Crunch, the podcast for any large enterprise planning on moving to or is in the midst of moving to the cloud. Hosted by the cloud computing experts from Second Watch, Ian Willoughby, Chief Architect Cloud Solutions, and Skip Berry, Executive Director of Cloud Enablement. And now, here are your hosts of Cloud Crunch. Hey, everybody, this is Ian Willoughby, Chief Architect of Second Watch here, and I'm joined with my co-host, Skip Berry. On today's episode, we have a, a special guest who is a colleague of ours, Victoria Geronimo, and uh, she is our Security and Compliance Product Manager. We've had a great opportunity to be working with her for a while, and we're going to hear some very insightful insights from the security world. Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Victoria. Now, Victoria, what I want to do is get started on a question for you, and it's a little bit about your background. Uh, I had the opportunity to interview you when you came on board, and I was fascinated with both your education and your work background, and and I think it lends so well to why you're an expert in this field. So if you could elaborate on some of that, that would be fantastic. Yeah, sure. So one not so little known fact about me now is that I um, originally went to school for law. Um, I loved being a lawyer. I love all that nitty gritty law dork stuff. Um, And one of the things that I really enjoyed in law school was policy, especially internet law and internet policy. Um, So after I graduated law school, I had a pretty clear idea that I did not want to be a lawyer. I'd had a couple summer internships where You did a lot of paperwork and there's a lot of late nights internal politics over very dry stuff. Um, And just the policy and the dynamicism of that really interested me. So I went to do a internet law and policy fellowship after I graduated law school. And that was really great. We did a lot of cool stuff, especially with ed tech, because that was a uh, burgeoning field, sort of what rights does Google have to like record your children in the classroom, et cetera. Um, And the one thing that you you started to learn very quickly was a lot of the people uh, creating the laws uh, don't know anything about the underlying technology for which they're creating the laws about. So you would have a lot of just laws being made that didn't take into account some really basic fundamental um, foundations of um, the technology. So the, the law really just didn't make sense to the people who it was supposed to apply to. So like your Facebooks, et cetera. So with that, I was like, okay, if I, if I want to go back into policy eventually, I really ought to learn more about the underlying technology and really learn more about it. And I was always really involved with privacy law, which uh, kind of segued into security. So I had a job in security working under this uh, guy, Steve Schwartz, who was, you know, a Navy cryptographer, pen tester, kind of really hardcore straight security person. And he taught me a lot about what I know today about security. And from there, I headed up InfoSec at a fintech startup and then I came to Second Watch. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's, I would say that's a very unique background, how you ended up there. <laughs> and uh, I think it's, it's pretty impressive. So your title is Security and Compliance Product Manager. Mm-hmm. And uh, often people use these terms interchangeably, but obviously they're not the same thing. Could you elaborate on what the differences are? Yeah. So the way I like to frame it is security should 
always be the baseline and that should always inform your compliance regime. So security are really the the processes and the technological controls that are governing the CIA triad, which essentially is confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data. Um, Security is all about protecting data at the end of the day. So that can be um, physical controls, like if you go to an AWS data center, if you can ever find one, because they don't like to give out the address, you know, it will have armed guards and HVAC and temperature controls. That's one aspect of security. But then you also have, you know, your technological controls like encryption, et cetera. Compliance is the set of standards that um, either some sort of governing body, whether that be um, a federal government or something like a council, like the PCI council, which is what gives you the credit card standards, um, they'll give a set of guidelines that you should um, adhere to if you want to be considered in compliance, which basically means somebody can give you a repercussion for having not complied with those standards. Um, so they're basing that off of what good security controls are. Basically, at the end of the day, security is what you should always be doing, and then compliance is what you should be doing um, according to some council that has authority over you. That's that's a great answer, actually. I um, subscribe to that, Victoria. <laughs> so, um, tell me a little bit about you know regulations that keep on cropping up, and uh, you know GDPR, CCPA. You know those are, seem to be the two probably most prominent at the moment around um, where security and compliance meet. Can you help distill uh, those a little bit for us? Yeah. So at their core, they're really both privacy statutes. And they use security in some ways and compliance in some ways to achieve uh, privacy rights for individuals. GDPR is uh, Europe's, the EU's version of its privacy control. And EU is technically very, very privacy driven, um, much more than, say, the United States. And then CCPA is California state law, and it's by no means the first or only state law to try to do some privacy provision, but it is the most comprehensive. GDPR is giving a lot of privacy rights to the individual um, by giving them control over their data. So what that does is it essentially gives a number of like right of erasure, right of modification, of right of knowledge, essentially, of in an individual person in the EU's data. So say you want to know um, what data Google has on you. You should be allowed to call up Google, put in a request for them, and Google has to tell you what data they have on you. And then if it's inaccurate, you can submit, hey, this data is not correct. You have to amend it to say X, Y, Z. And it gives... EU people a lot of rights over that, as well as what happens to their data when they submit it to somebody else. CCPA is is similar. It it doesn't go quite as far as GDPR in terms of giving people absolute right over what happens to their data and what their data says, but it does give people, one, the right to opt out of the collection of their personal data, as well as gives them the right to deletion in some cases and to know where their data is being sold to. So the right to know, hey, we are selling your data to a marketing company down the line. That's great. Thank you. Where do you think they stand as far as being enforced and in the arc of time, do they have any teeth really? 
Yeah. So GDPR, they've already had a few high profile cases like against Google and British Airways and hundreds of millions of dollars. Realistically, is I think they just had a, another fine against Google go through, which was about 40 million. That's a drop in the bucket for Google. So a lot of it is also PR. EU is a little bit more anti-Google than the US is. And for CCPA, it actually has not started to be enforced yet. It was originally supposed to be enforced on January 1st of this year, uh, but they pushed it out to either July 1st or October 1st. They're still deciding. Excellent. Yeah, if you were need to comply with both of those, if you just followed GDPR compliance as an example, is there one that supersedes the other and that you would be covered on both or are they unique? So they are unique. Um, they have a lot of similarities, but a couple of different um, aspects to them. For example, CCPA, um, while you can opt out of having a, um, if you're above the age of 18, you are allowed to, you have to have an opt out button on your website saying, I opt out of the collection of my data. Um, however, if you are a minor, so 13 or under, you have to have an opt-in instead of an opt-out. There's no distinction really there in the GDPR language. In terms of the basics and like what, what the similarities are, it, it is one, the right to deletion and having a portal for people to be able to field requests as well as submit requests, as well as having an audit trail to prove that you've been complying with these requests. In terms of straight security, um, one interesting thing is the CCPA actually expands liability for security breaches to citizens of California. So while a lot of people are like, okay, well, CCPA, how much teeth does it really have? There's this component of it that says, um, if your company undergoes a data breach, and it was because your ducks were not in a row as far as security is concerned, it wasn't up to standards, it doesn't really define what those standards are, but up to standards, then instead of just the AG having a right of action against you, each person whose data was breached also has a right of action against you. So now they're opening themselves up to class action lawsuits, et cetera, which is, in my opinion, pretty interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's great how the litigious society yeah, yeah. <laughs> continues. What about um, what happens in, in the archive world, backup world, like the long term, you know, say like Glacier and all that? How does that, you know, you, how does that count in this world? So this is actually something that uh, we don't really know. Another big aspect to these these laws is that they do have a number of exceptions for them. So, for instance, if somebody says you have to delete my data if it's for a good business purpose, um, you don't have to delete their data. So say if like you need to, they're like, please delete my name and address, but you still need to send them billing requests all the time because they're still in contract and still taking services from you. Then you can say, no, we, we need your data in order to, to be able to conduct our business. For things like Glacier, um, where in other long-term backups, on one hand, these laws are saying you need to have adequate security. Um, you need to comply. In GDPR's case, they use ISO 27001, which is a very long list of security controls. And a big part of that is having data backups, um, having data backups, being able to bring them back for disaster recovery, um, making sure your information is available. That's very important for um, business and security and data protection. However, at the same time, 
It's also saying you need to delete data if you have a data request. So that's an area where it's going to be unclear whether having those backups is going to outweigh the privacy right. I think that at least in the U.S., we will say backups do outweigh the privacy right. I know the Danish authorities in the EU have said where technically possible, you should delete somebody's information from backups. However, that's a really vague yeah. thing that will definitely get litigated at some point. You start to get into that that world of yeah. uh, kind of uh, breaking down that CIA, uh, right? The triangle again, because now you take away integrity of other data. You take away the confidentiality of other data. Yeah, exactly. so very interesting, very perplexing problem. But Yeah, exactly. So I, I see, and this is exactly like the policy nerd that I was always interested in when I first got into security is like, how do you weigh those individual aspects of it? Um, and and how do you architect a system to, you know, I, I do believe in privacy rights to some extent and certainly security, but at what point are you just kind of shooting yourself in the foot? Right. So to use a technical term, this sounds hard. <laughs> <laughs> but, but with that stated, when you're designing an architecture or an application, it, how do you how do you go about doing that to make sure that you're you're compliant with all these emerging laws, there's existing ones, the GDPR, CCPA, and then, you know, other states as well. And then your security frameworks on top of that. But, yeah. And obviously that's an easy question to ask, but it, it, I'm sure it's a complicated answer. But what are some of the overall arching uh, approaches that people should be looking for? Yeah. Um, so this is actually something that Rob Whalen and I, um, who, you know, he heads up our data practice, have been talking about recently because, you know, he's building data lakes and data practices. And where does all the PII live if not in data lakes or random S3 buckets here and there? So we've been working together to try to try to answer that exact question. And we've identified areas that Every, no matter if it's GDPR or CCPA or another privacy framework is really, you want to always, the first step is know where your data lives. It's really important to have data flows. How does your data come into you? How does it get into your system? And what data is that? And where does it, what different resources is it hitting? And then where does it finally end up? Um, so data discovery as well as data mapping and knowing at every point where your data lives is is square one for anything, no matter what what law you're trying to comply with. That also kind of necessitates a tagging strategy. You want to make sure, even though everyone has always said you need to have a good tagging strategy and always tag your assets, I'm sure Ian, as a solutions architect, you know <laughs> how difficult that is. Like when you come back a year later, whether whether they're still uh, tagging as per your specifications, you also want to make sure you have um, some sort of notification mechanism and way to field data requests. So one, hey, you have to have a portal for allowing people to field requests. And I know Amazon has like a connect which is kind of basically like a, a call center at, that you can use um, and it will field requests for you and automate that. But you also want to have a way to comply with those requests. So a purge mechanism. So you basically need a way of querying that data and saying, hey, Joe Smith needs to access their data. What data do we have on Joe Smith? Hey, is that actually the Joe Smith that is contacting us right now? Or is this another Joe Smith? 
And what does he want us to do? He wants us to delete it. Does it meet an exception? So you need ways to automate all of those different compliance policies, like all those different questions that would maybe hopefully one day be machine learning. And then you need a way of, of auditing it too. So you need an audit trail to prove to, you know, heaven forbid a lawsuit comes against you that you've been actually complying with these requests within what a reasonable person would think you've been doing. Another aspect that's actually, sorry, I'm nerding out a little bit. That's actually very oh, keep going. Keep doing <laughs> um, interesting is people have tried to comply with these policies and in trying to comply with them, they've actually messed it up a fair amount by giving away somebody's personal information. So say if you, Ian, you hit up a company, like say, I want to know what Seamless has on me and what information Seamless has on me or sorry, it wouldn't be you. Say somebody, your mortal enemy wants to know this about you. They want to know what you order for dinner skip. every night. Yeah. Skip. <laughs> skip. my mortal enemy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Skip wants to know. And he writes them and he goes, hey, I'm Ian Willoughby. Like, can you please let me know what information you have on me? Um, in an effort, in an overzealousness to comply with GDPR requests, there have been cases where they've just given it to Skip, given Ian's information to Skip because they haven't really validated mm -hmm. Ian or Skip is Ian. So that's another aspect that you need is how do we validate that this person is who they say they are and what is going to be considered the gold standard? Some people are like, maybe I'll email them my driver's license. or But then that gets into now you're just emailing your personal information all everywhere oftentimes over unencrypted internet. So it's... What a loop. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How do you... So I guess where it touches many facets of the business and where we are right now, again, just in the uh, nascent years, uh, if you will, of this, what's a great place for businesses to start in approaching and looking at this kind of problem from your experience and know-how here? Call a lawyer. No. Um, yeah. lawyers, don't know, <laughs> lawyers don't know anything about this yet either. Yeah, um, yeah. So it... Really, it's data mapping, data mapping, data mapping. Know what data you have, where it lives, and make sure, um, please make sure you're encrypting your data. It's all about data discovery from the get-go, I would say, square one. Hmm. That's, cool. well, that's great too, because there's you know there's a lot of tools I out on the, the cloud providers as well that can help with these governance tasks as well to make sure that they're there. And uh, I think that's very helpful as well. Uh, such as AWS Config and yeah Macy as well yeah Macy and Azure's got the whole security center as well associated with that so I think that those are some great ways to really engage with those tools uh, now there's been a shifting gears just a little bit there's been a lot of questions about when to use AWS Outposts and th there's some specific industry related <laughs> whether it be low latency for technical reasons but what are some of the other advantages where Outposts should be used for security wise issues? So this, I think, is a fun question because um, it really, there's this other concept um, called FIPS, which is there's different levels of, um, do you want one, two, three, or four? And when you get, they refer to the level of security on, say, like a given server or something like that. So you could technically, there's something called FIPS level four, which is you essentially have armed guards guarding um, your server day and night. Um, 
theoretically, we could come out with a second watch outpost where we have FIPS level four and we just hire armed guards to hang out outside of it all day. But that's, that is an interesting question of if you have AWS outposts, what additional security controls can you place around that to make it even more super secure? I really think that outposts is an interesting concept for security because uh, traditionally we've always thought of things like um, AWS being more secure than a data center because one, there's just higher availability, um, higher latency, but also because nobody knows where their data centers are. So if people start to use AWS outposts, then you are reintroducing some of the old security concerns essentially. Is it, well, companies use it as well, maybe for um, avoiding or being evasive to the GDPR and, uh, and CCPA requirements? I, no, um, they, no, because really there, you can't evade those requirements um, because it's all about where is the data going and they will know essentially if you are collecting data about somebody now that I'm thinking about it, I guess you could, you know, completely isolate it, have it off the books. Yeah, and... I was thinking like put it in the Channel Islands or something like that. Yeah. Channel Islands isn't subject to EU. <laughs> the Cayman know, but... Islands. Well, yeah, yeah, there you go. Right? The thing is, is data, it's supposed to follow the person itself. So no matter where it lives. So in uh-huh. the case of GDPR, there's a misconception that it can't leave EU borders, uh, that if you have data on an EU citizen, that it can't leave the EU borders. Um, that is technically true, but really the truth behind that is the EU is allowed to okay countries. So they can say, hey, the US is um, an okay country. We like their laws. We like their security controls that they have in their laws. So if you can transfer data to to the United States. The point being though that the right is with the citizen itself and the citizen's data. So it doesn't matter where that data goes. It's always going to be subject to GDPR. So jurisdiction is more with the, with the person than it is on where the data resides. Correct. Yeah, that's good. That's great distinction. Yeah. Now, Victoria, I know you have a crystal ball on your desk there (laughs) and that's good. That's good because everybody should have one. So you're going to predict the future of security and compliance in the cloud and the trends where they can get help. Where do you see that direction going with uh, Azure, Google, and AWS? Yeah. How they're going to help their customers reach security and compliance? You know, a couple of years ago, I would have said people just want a out-of-the-box solution. They want to be able to click on something that says HIPAA compliance, and it will just implement all of the controls that you could ever want. I do think that is sort of the case, but I'm surprised that a lot of customers have not gone to that because usually people hear compliance and their eyes glaze over and they just want to hand it off to somebody else. Um, I was that person for, for a long time where they handed it off to. And I would say that that's actually not so much the case anymore. Really, the, where I think they're going is one towards data lakes and data discovery. And then somewhat curiously is they're, they're each kind of moving in different directions when it comes to um, how much they're focusing on security. So I would say Azure has focused a lot on, let's have a seam soar, which is essentially like 
monitoring network trafficking and responding to potential breaches and threats. AWS is a lot about centralization with their config tool is like, how do we all make sure that we can see something in one portal and then affect changes throughout the environment? And so that's really direction I, I see them going. I also see a big play just with multi-cloud security is like, how are we going to play to each cloud strengths? And then on top of that, optimize for you know pricing and um, performance. Great. Last question. So enterprises, or let's say up and coming companies, they're obviously, they're growing. They're starting to realize that their cloud footprint is bigger. Their customers are, mass is growing every day. And they start to freak out. What's the first step that they should be looking at towards moving towards a more compliant and secure environment? Encryption. (laughs) Make sure you encrypt everything. Make sure that your IAM policies are up to date. So actually this is this is really good because we have our security assessment um, with that second watch, which is essentially this four-phased approach where we're first running essentially an automatic scan of their environment and looking to see the most common vulnerabilities. And 10 out of 10 cases, it's always the same vulnerabilities that are happening. It's problems with their IAM. There's you know keys everywhere. They haven't rotated their keys admin credentials to people who shouldn't have admin credentials. There's no incident response policy. So especially with something like COVID that's very uh, pertinent right now, where if something were to happen, they don't have a process for one, what do we do? How do we get servers back up and running as soon as possible? How do we get our business back up and running as soon as possible? And then how do we preserve evidence? If, you know, if it's a hacker malicious attack, how do we make sure that we're preserving evidence so we can do a post-mortem of it? They have no seam, so they have nobody monitoring their network traffic. So those are really the things that we always, always find, and we always try to get them to remediate over again. After that, Based on what we're talking about with compliance, it would definitely be knowing what data you have and where it goes. Fantastic. Well, Victoria, it's an honor to work with you. Thank you so much for joining our show this week. Thank you. And uh, great discussion. Skip, great yeah. seeing you too. Yeah, Hearing likewise. From you. Likewise. Thanks again, Victoria, for joining us this week. Yeah, also. Thanks for having me. It's a really appreciated. It's a pleasure. Ian, thank you. Absolutely. Join us next week for another episode of Cloud Crunch. You've been listening to Cloud Crunch with Ian Willoughby and Skip Berry. For more information, check out the blog, secondwatch.com slash company slash blog, or reach out to Second Watch on Twitter. 